Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. For those of you who are just joining me for the first time, where have you been? And if you're wondering why I say good morning, good afternoon, evening, it's because this show is not only live on iHeartRadio, but it goes to podcast afterwards. So I never know what time zone, what time of day it is that you, my faithful listeners or new listeners are listening to the show. So that's why I always say good morning, good afternoon and evening, because, you know, I want to cover all my bases. And I'm just so excited every opportunity I get to spend on the air with all of you and You know, this is live radio. Even if you're listening to the podcast, you're listening to a live radio show when it originally aired, like it is right now. I sit here in a studio in Vero Beach, Florida, WAXE, and the show is on iHeartRadio, so you can listen to it on the iHeart app and and all of that, and then in podcast anywhere that podcasts pretty much are, are found, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it may be, and in my website, it's all about the questions.com. You can listen to all of the shows as well. Now, there's something really interesting about live radio that a lot of people tend to forget about nowadays because of the world of podcasts. They're like, oh, these podcasts are pre recorded and, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't show up when they're supposed to show up because, you know, they can just reschedule it and they're recording them in advance of when the show is going to play. Here's the difference. When you're on live radio and somebody doesn't show for whatever reason it may be, I've had a guest not show because they had, um, they're in the cybersecurity world and they had a major crisis hit. So they literally had to not be on the show within moments of when they were supposed to air. I, I've had people have phones go down, uh, personal crises, whatever it may be. And sometimes scheduling conflicts that aren't transmitted over to me happen, which is what has happened with the guest I was supposed to have on the show today. If you follow me on social media, you know I've been promoting the fact that I am having was supposed to have one of my favorite authors, James Rollins, on the air with me today to help launch his new book, Crucible, a thriller from his Sigma Force. But I just got a note from his publicist that they had rescheduled one of his book tour events, and he's currently en route to the airport, so he's not able to be on the air with me today. Although, um, James, if you can hear me, Danielle, if you're listening, call in from the car. Let's talk for the few minutes that that you can and and talk about the, the book. But that's the beauty of live radio, right? And it's also the frustration about it. It's very much like life. You can plan, plan, plan all you want. You can prepare all you want. I have pages of notes of things that I wanted to ask James, which I'm still going to get to do on January 25th at the Vero Beach Book Center at 5 p.m. because they've asked me to do an in-conversation with James Rollins at the Book Center. So you're going to still get to hear me if you can come to Vero Beach and maybe I can get them to record it. You'll still get to, I'll still get to ask him the questions that I wanted to ask him today. But what do you do when life turns left and you're in the middle of turning right? How do you handle that? 
for me, some days it's harder than others. Um, when I'm on the air, I don't really have that luxury, right? Because I've got you out there, my listeners, wanting to hear content from me. And because it's live radio, not just a podcast, there's people who this radio station is broadcasting. If I'm not talking, if there's something that's not out there, then there's going to be dead air. You know, that staticky sound and people will be flipping through the dial going, wait a minute, there's something wrong. Why can't I hear something? And they're not going, oh, it's my radio. They're going, there's something wrong with the radio station. So we don't always get to just take a break. We still have to go forward in some way, but we can't always see what that way is to go forward because we can get so stuck in the fact that our plans All of our plans, all of our preparation has to be thrown out the door or we have to figure out another way of making that happen. So my question out to you, my listeners, is how well do you handle when you have to go left when you really wanted to go right or you wanted to go forward and you have to go backwards or sideways? Mark Sandburn wrote this wonderful, wonderful book called Up, Down, or Sideways. And it's a a great book about how you have to learn to pivot, how you have to learn to move in different directions, because life goes on. You're not working in a bubble. I may seem like I'm in a bubble right now because I'm in a radio station studio, and it's just me sitting here in a room. And, you know, I've got Mr. B in the booth in the other room, but... I'm not alone out here, right? There's air. Then there is a vacuum and something else is going to come in and fill that. So how do you handle when life does that? Mark Sandburn's book was really fascinating to me because he lays out in it how you can learn these skills, exercise these muscles to help you when you want to go in a direction and a wall goes up and you just can't go any other way in that direction. You you have to stop. You have to pivot. Sometimes you have to go backwards. Sometimes you have to go to the side until you can get back to the path that you want to go on. But what if that path that you want to go on, you can no longer get to because of all the situations that happened? So like I could choose to go, James can't be here with me today and shut myself down. Or I could have some fun with this, right? So I'm going to have some fun with this because what it makes me think about is how do we learn resiliency? Ann Grady has been on my show a couple of times. I love her. She really talks about resiliency a lot. Um, Brene Brown does as well. And I, I just love their concepts, but is it really real, right? Can we just do that. So I want to talk about James's book, The Crucible, for a moment, because I don't know how he does it. When I read books like this, and last week I had Brad Taylor on the show, which is another fiction writer, and I don't often have fiction people on, but if I love their books, I just want to chat with them, right? And because it's my show, I get to interview people that I love. I, Brad Taylor last week said that when he started writing his book, Um, Daughter of War that released last week. This one character, Mina, in the book, Amina, 
in the book was just supposed to be sort of this character that sort of tied a few things together throughout the book. She was a little character that appeared here and there. But as he started writing the book, he realized that that's not where that character needed to go. But he had a plan for the book, right? He was just going to introduce this character. And this is just a fiction book. But all of a sudden, this character took on a life of her own. And that character became a central thread to the book. And when I read the book, I had no way of knowing that that character was only supposed to be a small thread because I can't imagine that book working without Amina being the central character in it. It's sort of like life, just like James Rollins' books where he weaves um, technology and science and fiction and um, histor- history in there and religion and all of that into the book, how do you keep all those pieces together? For me, I've really struggled the last few years. And somebody was asking me, I don't even remember where it was. I think it was um, a friend of mine on on one of my social media. They said, where, where have you been? What have you been struggling with? You know, we really haven't seen you much in the last few years. And I said, well, you know what? I devoted the last six years of my life. It's a little bit longer now because mom's been gone over a year to really focusing on my mom. And at the time, my husband, who's now my ex-husband, really trying to take care of everybody else. I put aside business, but how do you get back into it? I saw a path. I knew where I wanted to go, but you know what? I can't figure out how to get back onto that path anymore. And I have to think about it and go, well, does that mean this is the path I'm meant to go on? Or has the path changed and I just can't see it? So should I stay focused on where I thought I wanted to go, where I had this plan that I was going to go? Or do I let all those thoughts go and spend a few hours or a day or two sitting down and figuring out a new plan. I don't know what the answer to that is. I really don't. But, and I'd love to know what y'all think about it. And if you do want to call in and chat, you can call me at 772-778-3500. And Mr. B will pick up the phone and put you on the air and we can have a chat. And if you've got a question or an issue or a concern that you have, you're struggling to get through your path, um, I'd, I'd love to chat with you. So 772-778-3500. So where I've been going with this little bit of a ramble is this whole concept of, you know, are you going to make lemonade out of the fact that nobody showed up at the station because situations outside of your control uh, prevented it? Or... Are you just going to bite into a sour lemon and get mad? I choose not to get mad because, you know, sometimes some of the most brilliant stuff ever comes when you have to reinvent, when you have to say to yourself, where do I go from here? How do I manage to keep my thoughts together and make sense out of a situation I had no control of? And I love that. It's so much fun because it gets me thinking on my feet and saying to myself, you can do this. Wow. You have the brain power. You know what you're doing. But often we lack confidence in ourselves to just improvise. 
And improvisation is one of the best tools to keep yourself sane. Although I know at times it can seem like it's not. So how do you learn those ability to improvise? I interviewed once somebody a few years ago, and she actually teaches people how to improvise. They have comedy workshops where you actually go in and they hand you a topic and you're with another person on stage and the two of you have to begin improvising an entire scene and just have the conversation going. So whatever the other person says, you have to say the word and and then continue that thought and you see how many times each of you can put an and onto the last sentence that somebody was saying or the last thought somebody had declared. And I love the exercise. See, I just used the word and. I love the exercise because what it does for you is it stretches your thinking. And it's okay if you pause for a moment. Be uncomfortable in the pause. Now, granted, I can't really do that very well on the radio because Anytime I pause, those of you who are listening lies are like, did something happen? What happened to my speakers? Why is there no sound? I'm doing a, a mastermind with Steve Ulsher, who's a good friend of mine, and he's just an amazingly brilliant man. He was one of the first guests ever on my show. He wrote a book called What Is Your What? And one of and during the webinar, the sound would blip. He'd be talking and I would get no sound. You'd see his mouth moving, but there were no words that you could hear. And I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. What if I miss some brilliant nugget? So I'm sitting there trying to read his lips, realizing I just can't do it. And then moments later, the sound would come back and I realized maybe I missed a couple of words, but how could I fill those words in? Most of us are not comfortable in those pauses in life. I, I know that since my mom passed, those pauses have really made me struggle and get stuck in this place of inertia of trying to get myself out. And this radio show was the only thing that got me out of the house, got me to start speaking and reconnecting with people, knowing that I had to do it every week I started writing a new book now all of a sudden since January 1st. These are all things that for the average person you don't think about. But when you're forced to step back, when you can't go anywhere or do anything, when some life change hits you, how do you move forward? A friend of mine I just found out is getting a divorce after 18 years of marriage he never thought it would happen. I never thought it would happen. I had had a conversation with his wife a couple of weeks before, and she's like, you need to come up and visit. Um, we love having you visit us. Come up and visit us. And then I spoke to them a month later and found out she had left a few days after that conversation. So you never know when change is going to happen and your world will be shook up. So what do you do in those situations? Well, hopefully you'll listen to some of my different um, conversations that I've had on the air with people and see where we can go from there. Hold on, I'm typing because they're trying to see if they can get James to call from the car. 
and we'll, you know we'll just do whatever we can with him but you see it's like I happened to look at my email while we were on here just to see if they responded back and they're trying to do whatever they can to get him on the air with me so I'm not really good at multitasking anymore <laughs> oh he's on he's on the line so we're um we're gonna get James on? Hold on. Mr. B, is he on? No, he's not on yet. Okay. All right, great. So in a moment, we're going to have James on. And I'm excited. So, but this conversation is something that I think it's really important that we all need to look at. And that is, how will you react when you have dead air? When all of your plans go south when circumstances outside your control seem to be in control of your next steps. And I encourage you to say to yourself, you know what? They're not in control. I am in control and I can still do whatever I want to do. So for me, I got to chat and have a good time and talk with all of you and share some of the thoughts that have been going through my mind for the last few months of, well, actually the last few weeks of the beginning of 2019, it, it becomes this question, and I really encourage you to think about this. At the end of the day, how you react in the pause determines what path you're going to take. Okay, and here he is. He's coming on. We've got James Rollins coming on to the show. James, can you hear me? I sure can. Thank you very much for having me on your program. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so, so excited. So where are you off to? Because I hear you're en route, to, en route to the airport. Oh, well, not only en route to a rental agency, because my flight just got canceled because of high winds. So I'm going to pick up rental and race as fast as I can over the mountain passes to get home. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So that just Welcome totally... Welcome to the world of book tours. <laughs> <laughs> that just totally fits with what I was just talking about for the, the last 20 minutes or so. Um, when I heard that things got changed around was how do you handle when life changes your plans well at least uh i have somebody to lean on my publishing department uh publishing house is very convenient about uh, arranging things but you know like like whenever we're on a book tour you just have to know things are going to go wrong and you do your best to uh you know try to try to save loose and easy and just go with the flow and you know, it's, no one's going to die if I'm, I'm, you know, 15 minutes late to a book signing. So it's not, uh, you need to keep everything in perspective. Yeah, it, compared to your first uh, profession as a veterinarian where that could, somebody could die, an animal exactly. could this die. Is, this, is, this is easy. <laughs> I still can't believe I get to do this. <laughs> this. All right, so since you said that, I want to ask this question of you. What was the first moment when you realized that writing was now real for you and not a hobby and you could let go of this amazing career you had as a veterinarian and pursue this other passion? You know, it was, it was not a, like a, a light bulb clicking off moment. It was more of a gradual, you know, tentatively stepping away, you know, one step at a time. You know, when I, I had a clinic for 15 years and when I sort of had enough success where my writing demands uh, became almost uh, more uh, demanding than my veterinary career, I had to, to realize, you know, something had to be let go. So I sold my clinic, but I stayed employed there for another year. Uh, the corporate group that bought my clinic, uh, they, uh, they wanted me to help transition, so I, I stayed on for a year. Um, 
but I always got rid of the business hat. I didn't have to do you know, hirings and firings and payroll and all that sort of stuff. So it made life a little bit easier. Um, and then you know, went from you know, full-time working as a employed vet to part-time, just weekends, and then I, then I stepped away. And, you know, I always sort of resent when people say, you know, he's a former veterinarian. And I go, no, I'm not a former veterinarian. I can still neuter a cat in 30 seconds if need be. Because <laughs> uh, I still work with a group that traps feral cats in the Sacramento Valley. And they bring them to the shelter. And I spend eight hours uh, every Sunday. Well, not every Sunday. One Sunday a month uh, spaying and neutering. To keep so your hand my, in I it, so to speak. I keep my in there. <laughs> or my scalpel, at least. Yes, yes. Well, you know, a lot of my listeners struggle with the whole concept of running a business and then letting it go to pursue something else. Do you have a piece of advice for them for helping them realize that dream? You know, I was talking to a uh, uh, one of my clients at the clinic uh, about because you know they became suspicious something was going on. Mostly, you know, the posters in the lobby. You know, get your cat spayed, get a free book. Um, so. They were That's realized. great marketing, by the way. It was a exactly. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not above that. Um, so, you know, questions began to arise across the you know, the table. They were like, you know, Jim, you know, what's what's your long term plans? You got a successful veterinary hospital. You know, what's this writing business about? And I'm thinking, gosh, you people are awful nosy. But uh, we'll try to answer your question. You know, for 15 years, writing was my uh, just a hobby. I wasn't making any money at it. Um, I wrote. You know, short stories for four years that are now safely buried in my backyard, hoping to see a lot of day. And uh, but you know, writing was my my veterinary medicine was my paycheck. That was you know paying the mortgage and, and you know keeping the lights on. And and I thought you know when I got this question asked across the exam table, my answer was you know well maybe down the line, maybe not immediately, but you know maybe sometime in the future it would be cool to sort of see that transition from you know writing becoming um, my paycheck and veterinary medicine becoming my hobby. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty much at that point because, like I said, all I do is that spaying and neutering. All I do now is just remove genitalia of cats and dogs. So it's, uh, it's a hobby. And so I sort of achieved that goal. But uh, to let that go was hard. I mean, I still miss the day in, day out of practicing. Um, you know, you always have to let go of one ring to grab another ring or you're not going to ever move forward. So... I was a veterinarian for, you know, I owned the practice for 15 years. I was an employed vet prior to that for, for five years. I was a, a vet for 20 years. And one of my clients was a psychologist, and she interviewed me for a paper that she was working on, specifically about uh, mid-life career changes. And she said that's a, it's a surprising statistic that many, many people do that. They will think this is my, my, my career, this is the cap I'm wearing for the rest of my life. But they'll find halfway along the journey that uh, they switch hats. So it's it's you know my switch was not unusual. Uh, many people do have multiple careers throughout their life, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I think you know just do the same thing day in day out, uh, uh, without any type of you know aspirations for doing something different. I think can can make for a duller life. Uh, and I love the way you Oh, my hobby is removing genitalia of cats now. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting hobby, and it's a great way of getting my listeners to really think about, you know, you can do anything you want. And I, I hope you can stay on for a little for longer because we are about to go into our national news break. And okay. if you can hang on, I'd love to keep chatting with you. So hang sure. on. We'll be right back. 
Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Welcome back, everyone. Everyone, we are back with James Rollins, who was able to call in, surprisingly enough, because his plans got changed. His flight got canceled due to wind. So, Yay. James, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you very much. It's it's exciting. You're going to be at the Vero Beach Book Center on January 25th at 5 p.m., and you and I are going to be in conversation live with that, Perfect. which is always fun, because so often I don't get to meet my guests in person. And your your latest book is Crucible. And yeah. I have loved your books for years. And I've, I've tried to, over the years, figure out what genre, right? You know, it says a thriller, it says this or that. But you managed to weave tech, science, medical, military, religion, history, and more into your stories. How do you do that? I write nonfiction books. And it's enough just to put that together. Well, I grew up reading a bunch of different genres. Uh, I wasn't like pigeonholed into only reading, you know, horror. And I read horror, I read science fiction, I read fantasy, I read thrillers, I read military thrillers, I read adventure thrillers. Um, and you know, I was occasionally I teach writing, and I always tell people, you know, you should you should write what you love to read because write readers have a good nose on them. They can snip deception off on the page where it's, you know, they can sell a sense that you're bored with that topic or you're bored with that genre or you haven't read well in that genre. They can, they can pick that up pretty quickly. So I always tell people you should be writing from a point of passion. You should be writing from uh, you know, topics that interest you or genres that interest you. So when I began writing, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I wrote for four years. I wrote a bunch of short stories, now safely buried in my backyard. And I tried a bunch of different genres. I tried writing science fiction and fantasy and horror um, and thrillers and, and all sorts of different types of styles. And I liked to write them all. And so when I started to write my first novel, um, I thought I was writing science fiction because it had science in it. And I was extrapolating where that science was headed to. But my esteemed editor, who I still, uh, who's the same editor that, pulled me out of the out of the slush pile back 20 years ago was my same editor today. She's the one that edited Crucible. She said, no, Jim, uh, yes, your story has science in it, but it's not science fiction because it takes place in, in modern times. We're calling this a thriller. And so, okay, well, it's, I'm fine with that because, you, know, you know, it has some thrilling elements. It's, uh, and I began to sort of continue to do that, where I blend science, I blend adventure, I, you know, I've got military, uh, a cast of former military so, uh, soldiers, because uh, I love reading military fiction, and so I just found uh, it's, what works for me is to blend them all together. Uh, it's confounded my publisher a little bit. Uh, they published about 10 of my novels before they invited me to New York City. And, you know, went up to the tower of HarperCollins in New York, and, you know, top floor, big boardroom, big long table, and everybody from HarperCollins is seated at that table. The room is packed, and I'm at one end of the table, the head of William Morrow's at the other side of the table, and he stands up and goes, you know, Jim, we've published 10 of your novels, but uh, we're not sure what you write. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, you wrote, you sold, you, know, you sold and published 10 of my novels, and I've you know, hit bestsellers list, so, you know. I was hoping you could tell me. 
So, you know, basically they, they eventually have to put you someplace in the bookstore. So they do like to know, you know, where are we putting your books? Um, so, you know, I think ultimately, you know, my goal as a writer is to entertain, is to build and construct a roller coaster that's going to have a lot of dips and turns and surprises, surprising drops and, uh, you know, sudden, sudden, you know, swift accelerations and decelerations. Um, and then, um, you know, just try to find the story that best can fit that roller coaster. You know, I'm looking for that historical mystery, some, you know, some piece of history that I can, that ends in a question mark that I can solve within the pages of a novel. You know, that I'm looking for that, that science that makes it go, what if, where's that headed, how that's, how's that going to affect us, what might happen if this type of science gets, you know, out of, out of control. And then I look for pieces of history and pieces of science that might blend together, and then I just, you know, I strap them to that roller coaster and give it a good shove. You know, I could say ripped from the headlines with so much stuff that's in your books, but when we think about it, so much of what you you wrote wasn't really in headlines when you were putting the stories together. They may have been a little blip here or a little blip there, but not headline-worthy things. But it seems like if you go... And to refresh myself in preparation for this interview and the one on the 25th, I went to the library and, and took armfuls of all of your novels out. And I just oh, read them you. back to back. And I go, oh my God, this is so happening now. Not every book, obviously, but even sure. the genetic manipulation ones of some of your other books. I mean, it's, it's happening. We're seeing it. But yet when you wrote it, it was more sci-fi thoughts than reality. Well, that's why I do have that what's, what's not at the back of every one of my books. I, I, I try to, even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I ground my books in reality, I'm going to take you somewhere a little bit, uh, you know, beyond the fringe. Uh, but, you know, I, it's not just pure speculation. It's usually grounded from, I've talked to a scientist, and this is really what's happening next. And so when I do my research, I love to call people, rather than actually having to look the information up myself, for two reasons. A, it's easier. Just tell me what I need to know, rather than make me look it up. And two... I, you know, because I'm dealing, especially with the science side of the the spectrum of my books, is I need to be as cutting edge as I can. Because when I finish a book, you know, it's going to take six months before it's published, maybe even longer. There's a lag time, so whatever science I'm putting in the book, I don't want it to make it feel like it's already, you know, beyond the curve that this has already passed by. So I'll talk to scientists and I said, hey, you know, I read your paper and that's great, but that information is, you know, three or four months old. Can you tell me, turn around, look over your shoulder, and tell me what's on your on your lab station, your work your work table right now? What are you working on today, uh, so that I can put that in the book, so that when it comes out, it feels fresh. And, and so I'm always looking, you know, not far beyond the curve, but just you know what's around the corner. You know, in Bone Labyrinth, the book that came out two years ago, I was dealing with the fact that we're getting close to the point that we can genetically manipulate. Uh, and create artificial humans. It can be genetically changed and alter uh, at the genome level and create babies that can be basically designer babies. And so I talked to scientists, well, who would do that? Who would actually manipulate DNA in, in such an extreme manner, especially, you know, having offspring from this genetic, human offspring of this genetic, genetic manipulation? And, and where I was heading was, Right now, there's you know scientists in China that are doing that, and so that's why I ended up setting a lot of the, the that story in China was because that's where it was happening. And then just a couple months ago, we found out that you know the revelation that there's Chinese scientists that were doing genetic, genetic manipulation on on babies. Yet the so, world seems so surprised, James, from 
you know, I, I read a lot of books like yours, and I read a lot of nonfiction books, and I, I read a lot of news feeds and stuff. And then when these things happen, right, that this guy in China talks about the genetic babies, and now all of a sudden the whole world is like, well, we need to start talking about how we manage this. You know, do we put policies in place and say, no, we shouldn't do this as humanity? Why do you think it surprises people? Because, I mean, you guys have been talking about it for years, and it, it you got your stuff from somewhere. Yep. I mean, I think at this point, um, people are sort of used to a certain certain you know, status quo, and they expect this is where this is the, the sandbox we're going to play in, and no one would dare step out of that sandbox. But, you know, for this for, for Crucible, it, it deals, this book deals with, you know, where we're at currently with artificial intelligence and, and where that's headed and what that might look like in the near future. And uh, similar to genetic manipulation, there was a big AI forum uh, where they had, you know, the head of, of Google and Facebook and, and major policy players in, in governments in, in throughout the Middle East and, and Europe and America where the topic was is, you know, what are we going to do if someone tries to develop an artificial intelligence that develops to the point of, of, of our level of intelligence and self-awareness? Because they all recognize this is a danger, that once this, this entity arises, it will probably swiftly change into something that's super intelligent, and that may be a risk to us. And so they had this huge forum where everybody was going, well, you know, what are we going to do? Do we put, you know, do we put laws against, you know, this, this is the sandbox we're going to play in and we don't cross this line? And the consensus was it'll never work. Is that somewhere, some lab, some uh, authoritarian country is going to work on it. They're going to cross that boundary. They're going to climb out of that sandbox and work in the fringes and, and do, do things that could be quite dangerous. And that was one of the reasons I sort of wanted to write this book is to, to, to bring awareness of how close we actually are to the advent of the first artificial general intelligence and an AI that's as smart as us and why that's risky and why we, we need to maybe look at ways of uh, circumventing when that happens because we're, not, we're never going to be able to pass laws that are going to stop it from happening. Right now, there's sort of a gold mine, gold rush mentality when it comes to AI, where everybody's rushing forward to be the first one to produce an AI because it's going to be very valuable and very powerful. Uh, that's the tool everybody wants. It's a tool that Vladimir Putin said that whoever controls AI will control the world. And so everybody's after that, that, that gold ring, but they're ignoring all the warning bells that are that are being risen in different AI labs saying maybe we better you know slow down pull back rethink this and that all sounds good but it doesn't happen in real life real life because there's going to be a big payoff some people are going to push that boundary so the crux of crucible the core of this is something I've learned from talking to different AI researchers is you know what can we do and, and the consensus was it's going to happen and and I'll in a moment, uh, if, you, if you want to know, I can tell you what their belief is and when it's going to happen. But they said it's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. And the best scenario is that the first AI that gets created needs to be what they describe as a friendly AI. An AI with that, a soul. That, that is you know, empathetic to us, that understands us, that isn't going to decide that we're uh, you know, a, a thorn inside a... Uh, uh, a roadblock to its its own growth, and it's going to uh, 
attack us. So not HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, or Skynet and the Terminator, or any of the other ones that right. so, we, we've so heard about. You know, we don't go that far with that. We're looking at right, where's that technology today? What are, what's going on in those labs? What, what scientists are trying to create that friendly AI, and how are they doing that? You know, why are they doing that, and what might it look like if something goes wrong? And that is the, the uh, sort of the uh, technological marvel slash monster that is the, the MacGuffin of Crucible. Yeah. I'm a geek, okay? I, I, you don't know a lot about me, but I owned a technology services company for 50, 15 years, right? A multi-state company. I... Are you working on an AI? <laughs> No, I was not. But, you know, I remember in college, everybody was like, hey, can we figure out a way when we're, we're, I have a degree in computer science and, you know, you learned coding and assembler code and all this other stuff. And we're all like, hey, can we figure out how to do this? And we were doing robotics stuff. And for me, when I read it, it was so real because I knew guys that had been talking about this for 30 years plus. And the, your books are so real in that you know this is really happening, but you're praying that when you read the end of your book and you go through what's real or not, you'll go, oh, that was fake. Because heaven forbid it's real. We've got a big problem on our hands. Exactly. I, mean, that's, yeah, I always consider my books, you know, I, I, I want them to be the roller coaster ride. I want people to be thrilled and excited and cry and, and have all the emotions that you're going to have on that roller coaster. But ultimately... A lot of my books acted, I hope, as a little bit of cautionary tales about, you know, what's going on in the real world. You know, yes, it sounds maybe it's a bit outlandish, but it's not. And this is really what's going on. I've talked to these scientists. I've asked, you know, I, I surveyed them about, you know, when do they think the first AGI, this first artificial intelligence that, that is at our level of intelligence and is self-aware, when do they think that might happen? And my you know, I, I was talking. I had probably maybe two dozen AI researchers I, I had as in my back pocket to consult with aspects of the story, and I, I surveyed them. And there was a larger survey that was also done by uh, a newspaper in regards to not newspaper, it was a research journal um, about when they think this this singularity might occur with this moment when computers get as smart as us, and the consensus. From my survey, happened to just match what was going on with the same survey from the research journal, which they were basically anywhere from five years to 15 years, which was where most of those answers landed. That we know of, right? Because that we know. But that's the, that's the weird thing. This is what creeped me out and why I wrote this book. This is the whole reason I wrote this book. I, you know, whenever I'm working on you know, doing my research, I do 90 days of research just to see if there's a story there. And sometimes I find, nope, there's no story here. So I can you know, throw all that research out and have to start over again. Ninety but days. What was, okay. What was the what was the, the uh, exciting thing for me about when I was talking to this one? To, when I did the survey, I asked everyone in my audience, "I'm not going to use your name. I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm not going to vilify you if you're wrong. Just tell me when you think it's going to happen." Well, a lot of those 24 researchers I was interviewing, two two of them said, "I think we're already there. I think we've already crossed that threshold. It's already been done." And, and, and they gave me proof on why they believed. So things they were seeing happening in the marketplace, things they were seeing happening in the real world, they sent me some documents. Um, so, yeah, we might be already there. We might be at that point already. It, it, <laughs> so I figured I'd better write this book now. I yeah, yeah, no, off. and I'm glad you did. And, and I wish 
that everybody in the world was sort of required to read this book because... I think they should. I, I do. <laughs> I do, too. And, you know, that's... Everybody listening, you need to give this book to everybody you know and get it in the hands because, you know, it's, it's this is what's going to be happening. It's going to happen. Like I said, it was... I wrote Bone Labyrinth, that genetic thing about the Chinese manipulating babies, um, you know, three years ago. I think what you're seeing happen in Crucible is going to be in headlines three years from now. And by then it's too late. It might be too late. Hopefully, you know, whoever creates this uh, abides by the information I got from talking to these researchers about creating a friendly AI and how to go about doing that, which is the crux of this novel. Is we see this AI, this cold calculating machine, very intelligent, uh, very dangerous, very manipulable, and we have a young female scientist that is trying to nurture this intelligence into, into being a friendly AI, and the techniques she uses in this book are the techniques I learned from talking to these AI researchers. Yeah, I mean, the, the technical details that you go into, to me, are just amazing, and because of the world that I, I play in a lot, it just really got me, and I've had a number of guests on the show that talk cybersecurity, and I've spoken at cybersecurity conferences as well about how we need to start asking different questions because the the hackers aren't thinking the way we are. So we need to be thinking like them, but even better than they are, because if we keep thinking the way we're doing, then we're always in react mode and we'll always be three years behind books like The Crucible that are a cautionary tale. So I mean, it's definitely... Uh important that we do know who our enemies are, so to speak. We, you know, we, we do know what we're fighting. You know, it's to fight blind, to fight, uh, you're going to lose. Right. And, you know, knowledge is power. And, you know, one of the facts that, that I learned while doing my research is that about 70 to 75% of all transactions in Wall Street are these buy and sell orders that are out. They're all done by artificial intelligence. They're not, no human makes these choices. They are all manipulated. Uh, and this is 70 75% of every, you know, sort of, everybody thinks Wall Street, everybody's trying to guess, you know, where Wall Street's going. Well, 75% of it's run by an AI. And back about five years ago, that, I, that AI glitched. And in that 13 seconds that AI glitched, the, the stock market dropped 1,000 points. So we're already very dependent on AI in many aspects beyond just, you know, it's, it's in our cyber security is, is run by AI. Uh, you know, Google is pursuing AI so that, you know, it's in your pocket, it's, it's in your television, it's, you know, it's a narrow AI, but still quite powerful, and a lot of times it's experimental. They put it out in the marketplace to see what happens, and, and sometimes these AI surprise us. And that's the thing that uh, is also scary, is that these scientists have created these artificial intelligent devices, and they give it a task to perform. They expect it to do, you know, A, B, and C, but it realizes it can go A, 4, 3, 2, C, as you think. Um, in this book, I talk about uh, a uh, AI that was developed by Google called Alpha, Alpha Go. Right. And... It was a game. It was a AI. It was taught to play the game, a Chinese game of Go, which is a very challenging it, game. Yes, it's, it's considered to be you know a, a trillions upon trillions of times harder than chess. And, I would agree. <laughs> you know, back three or four years ago, the estimation was we'll never develop an AI that can beat a human player of Go for at least a decade. 
well, three years later, AlphaGo Zero beats the human grandmaster of Go. And then it beat itself, too. Yes, then they decided, well, that's not good enough, so they created AlphaGo Zero, sort of the, the, the younger brother to AlphaGo, and this was a stronger AI, and they just gave it the rules of Go and said, play it over and over again until you learn how to play it. So within three days, this, this computer was so powerful, it played the game over and over again, that it beat the, in three days, it beat the human Go player, and it beat its older brother, the original, original uh, program. And it did that in three days with no human involvement. All the human involvement was was it gave it the rules of the game. And how it was able to do that was it thought of strategies that no human had come up with in thousands of years of playing Go. And it did that in three days. And people say, well, you know, we programmed it. Yes, but we programmed it, and now it can take all of that data and make leaps that we can't even imagine because of the number of transactions they can make. Again, in a, a huge number of scientists, most of the researchers talk about, they use concept the same as algorithmic black box, which I talk about in, in Crucible 2, which is basically they build this, you know, computer, but they don't really know what's going on. They don't know, they don't know how it's coming up with these, these answers. And just so you know, what. we have about a minute or so left to the show. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we might be already there. You know, you need to read Crucible because there's a lot of cautionary tales about it, but it's not just, I'm just not making the stuff up. It's all based on you know, talking to researchers and what's going on today. You know, it's not the Terminator type of, of story where it's way in the future. This is what's happening today. And, and I love that about your books because they really do keep me on the edge of the seat. And I read a minimum of a book a week, yet every time I read one of your new books, I think I know how it's going to go or where it's going to go, and it goes in a completely different direction. So you're just like the AI in here where you, you just... I'm an algorithmic black box. You are, and it's a brilliant thing, and I want to thank you so much for your flight being canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it kind of took you in a different direction, but I'm glad that you and I got to chat even for a little bit today versus well, I'm the whole show. I'm sorry that we I was so delayed in, in getting getting into that call though. You know, hope, uh, hope your listeners are are okay with that. I am sure they are totally okay with it because you know what? I'm okay with it and they can get to come to the Vero Beach Book Center, the local listeners, or you know, somebody can fly in if they want. January twenty fifth, five PM in conversation, James and I will be talking live in person. So thank you so much for being here and good luck with the rest of your book tour and I'll see you well, in you. Uh, about ten days. Perfect. See you then. All right. And everybody grab a copy of Crucible. And remember, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. And go check out the previous shows. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 